We're going to read from Colossians chapter 3. The words will also come up on the screen behind me here, so you can follow it there. And as we get into things today, we're going to focus on verses 8 through to 11. Uh, But to get a little bit more of the flow of it, I'll start from verse 5. So Colossians 3, starting verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's a few weeks ago now we were looking at this similar passage and focusing on the slightly earlier verses. And we began by realizing that here Paul is setting out his vision for the church. He's setting out his vision for for God's people. For, for us being salt and light in the world. And in order to do so, he actually brings some, some negative instructions. It's good to have positive instructions, but Paul also brings uh, sort of negative ones like, do not do this, in effect. Put, put this to death or put this away. Uh, before then, as we'll go on to see another time, he says, put this on, you know, pursue this, go after that. Uh, so we'll get to those positive instructions, but we're going to focus on uh, the negative ones again today, because there is a second list of things that Paul in particular wants to highlight to the uh, the Colossian church and say, get rid, get rid of these things. And that second list is in verse verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Uh, Wrath, I think you might have as rage, and obscene talk might be filthy talk or filthy language. That is what um, Paul also wants to bring to the Colossians' attention. You could kind of wrap them all up by saying, uh, Paul's vision for the church is a place where there isn't hostility between people, where there's, uh, there's peace between people. He goes on to kind of give his vision, his, his vision of kind of the, the big picture of what God has done, not just in... Uh, individuals' lives, but overall. So he goes on to say, here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised. You know, in, in the world at that point, almost the, the, the biggest, most hostile divide between uh, different people groups was that one there. Uh, Greek or Gentile and Jew. There was opposition, uh, different cultures, different beliefs, different ways of doing things, and that just rubbed up uh, against each other the wrong way, and obviously we, we see that in the world today. But Paul is saying, no, in the church, what God has done through Christ is he's made those distinctions uh, spiritually insignificant because Christ is all, Christ is all that matters, and Christ is in all. So for anyone who's received Christ, whatever their, uh, their racial background, whatever their social background, however wealthy they are, Uh, whether they're a man or a woman, everyone who comes to Christ uh, relates to him in exactly the same way and God views with the same worth. 
uh, with the same love. Uh, so one cannot, uh, someone can't thank God now for saying, well, thank you God that you haven't made me like so-and-so over there. I'm so glad, Lord, that you've made me a bit superior to them. And no, God, in saving us, has demolished that kind of, that wall, those walls of hostility. So, so Paul is saying that is what God has done. That's the big picture. Now that matters for us to get hold of, for us to get hold of in the way we relate to one another. And so generally, that list that we just went through kind of expounds what he means. Let's get rid of hostility. Let's get rid of aggro between people, between people in the church and then how we relate to people uh, in the workplace, uh, and people who aren't saved and so on. What do people see when they see us is hopefully uh, a salty, light example of people who know how to live in harmony with one another. So to get into this further, we're going to start again, similar to before when we looked at the, the first list and matters of, of sexual purity and greed and so on. We're going to look at, first of all, uh, what Paul is identifying. We're going to look at each thing on that list and say, what's, what's the essence of those things? Uh, why is it important, therefore, to get rid of those things? So we're going to focus on those and maybe look at a few examples as we go through. And then we're going to do what we always need to do when we look at Scripture and say, right, how do we apply this? How do we get hold of this? How do we put this into practice? What do we need to know and understand um, in order to, to kind of live in the way that, that, that Paul is saying? So let's look at the what. What is Paul saying, first of all? First of all, he comes to anger. Anger, that feeling that I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with, that can kind of just crop up almost at any moment. You know, sometimes things can be um, anticipated. Anger is somewhat of a feeling of strong displeasure with some kind of antagonism along with it that can kind of crop up uh, spontaneously, more or less. Sometimes not, but often there's a kind of spontaneous reaction to something, and suddenly, inside, we're feeling a strong dissatisfaction. It's almost like we could be in the same situation, but this time something happens and it's like a trap door opens. And, uh, and if we experience anger, sometimes we can fall into that, that trap door. Interestingly enough, just to look at this first one, is in general, anger is not necessarily a sin. Uh, it feels like somewhat walking a bit of a knife edge to say that. You might say, how can you say that? Surely uh, kind of anger is, is the very essence of what you've just spoken about, that kind of hostility. Well, what I mean is there are examples in Scripture where people were rightly angry. One example would be um, in the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 3. Jesus just started his ministry, just started... Uh, preaching and teaching and just started healing people. And there were a lot of people who were interested, but some of those people who were interested were just trying to catch him out, uh, ask awkward questions, so they thought, or set kind of a challenging test. And that seems to be what's happening here in uh, Mark 3. There's some teachers of the law there, some Pharisees, um, and they think that because the, the Sabbath, the holy day, should be kept um, holy and that no work should be done on that day. Jesus shouldn't heal anyone on that day because healing someone would be work and therefore healing someone would be a bad thing. So here is this encounter 
Um, they were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. There's this man there with a withered, with a withered hand in verse 1. In verse 2, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So there is uh, Jesus' righteous anger, both one at the same time compassionate for this person with the withered hand, also compassionate for these people who are suspicious of him because he wants them to come to him. Uh, His anger, therefore, it even tells us, is, is kind of directed towards not them individually, but the hardness of heart that he sees. This this stubbornness, this reluctance to come to him and see what he's going to do. That is an example of, um, of anger that is righteous and anger that is dealt with well. Here in Colossians 3, Paul is not so much focusing on um, anger that can be justified like that, anger that Jesus demonstrated, but anger that has uh, settled, settled into a feeling of hatred. And the best way I can describe that is to look at another example. And in Genesis chapter 4, right at the beginning of the Bible, um, we see the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, both born uh, from Adam and Eve. And the situation unfolds where both Cain and Abel offer sacrifices to God. Abel uh, offers a meat sacrifice, an animal, and Cain comes with... um, or crops or fruits from the ground. What happens is that Abel's sacrifice is accepted by God and Cain's isn't. Cain, as a result, is angry. Uh, So it says there uh, in verse 4, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Then it goes on to say, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Initially, Cain's response, Cain's reaction is anger. That anger settles and it goes unresolved, unchecked, spirals into a hatred for his brother, which then leads to an action of murder. So we see that, that initial reaction of, of anger, and then God says to him, sin is crouching at the door. Almost like sin is there, ready to pounce on this. When Jesus writes to uh, Jesus. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, um, making a similar point in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, he points out the danger of unresolved anger, of anger that is allowed to last uh, for more than a moment. Uh, He says there in, in Ephesians 4, verse 27, in the context of talking about anger, give no opportunity to the devil. 
or give no foothold to the devil. If you are uh, at all into climbing, um, you'll know that uh, certainly skilled and accomplished climbers can, can use a tiny foothold to support their weight whilst they look for other holds to get hold of. It's almost like that idea, the, uh, the enemy, the devil, can, can find anger and it gives him a foothold, something to purchase on. And even after a while, he can kind of erode away at that. And before you know it, rather than just have a little foothold, there's a massive ledge. And that can be a doorway that leads to other stuff. For, for Cain, that foothold of anger then resulted in, in murder, in something that's outworked didn't just stay bottled up, it came out. So anger, something there that Paul identifies, goes on to talk about wrath or rage. Uh, wrath or rage is no longer um, just experiencing an occasional uh, strong feeling of anger, but this anger is now being expressed and is now being expressed explosively. So the idea is of being uh, quick-tempered. Uh, hot-headed, uh, where any displeasure results in an eruption into kind of aggression and volatility. So if you're um, a passenger and a friend is driving you, uh, you're going somewhere, someone cuts up um, your friend as he's driving or he, sh- he or she is driving, and their response is one of wrath or rage. They're suddenly kind of exploding. They're not exploding at you, But you witness that kind of rage or that explosion, that quick temper, and so it has an effect on you nevertheless. It creates kind of fear or anxiety, even while this person is just thinking, oh, no, I didn't mean it against you. I was just having a go at them. Uh, But that's the idea, that kind of volatility, that kind of volcano eruption of of, uh, road rage being a classic example. That's wrath or rage. Moving on to the third thing, malice. Malice is where, this is no longer just an explosion of, of, uh, of anger or volatility that might happen to upset someone else but isn't intended to. Malice is where the anger or the wrath settles that bit more so that actually, in fact, there's the intention to do someone some harm. This is like taking revenge. This is like someone has done something to hurt me, I'm going to do something to hurt them. So with Cain, in the example that we just looked at, he was angry, he nursed that anger, and that became an intention to do his brother some harm. Maybe he started just thinking in his mind and going over the situation and saying to himself, I bet Abel knew about this. I bet in some way he tried to work this out. And now I'm going to intend to do him some harm. That kind of malice can be demonstrated by violence in the extreme form that Cain demonstrated. But perhaps also more often is shown in different ways, is shown by what we say. Not so much by physical acts of aggression or violence, but by things that we say. And this is then what Paul goes on to talk about in the following things of the list, slander. Slander is, is not kind of attack necessarily on someone's physical body, but is an attack verbally on their character. 
One example of that would be uh, telling lies about someone. And Paul goes on to say in verse 9, do not lie to, to one another. Don't tell lies. Don't tell things that are untrue. Don't say things about other people that are untrue. The motive behind that can be malice, can be, I want to get this person back. I want to make myself feel better. And so I'm going to try and do that by, by kind of making someone else seem a little bit worse. So telling lies, saying things that are untrue. But it can also be saying things that are true, but where the intention is still to kind of do harm. So sharing news about what you heard someone else has done, or what we've heard about someone else. And then kind of adding, oh yes, that's, you know, that's for your prayers. But really it's just a way of sharing bad news about someone. It might actually be true, it might be accurate, but there can be the intention there of just maligning someone else. These are all things that Paul is saying, put them away. Don't, don't go there, don't do this. This is part of what God has called us into is not being hostile with one another. And therefore, these are the sorts of things that can, can sometimes just creep in subtly. And we've got to beware of. You know, if someone came up and killed me right now, you would notice it. But later on, if someone comes up and just, or if I mention something about someone else which is slightly unkind or is untrue, then it might just go without being noticed. But it's still to be dealt with. It's still to be uh, put away, put aside, got rid of. So there is slander. There's also... Uh, the final thing on the list, uh, obscene talk. That could be taken to mean uh, filthy language. So saying things that are in some way rude or crude, uh, coarse joking perhaps, or, or swearing. That's certainly one meaning of that phrase. Some commentators have also pointed out the word could be translated abusive language, where again there's some intention to use language that hurts. Uh, name-calling insults, put-downs, uh, unwanted nicknames. Again, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, similarly, um, Paul making a similar point there says this in chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that, that it may give grace to those who hear. So let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Any kind of talk that in some way just dampens the atmosphere, that in some way kind of brings other people down. Um, even if it's not directed at you and you hear something, it can just have a discouraging effect. Now, God's big picture, God's big plan is for a church, a people where those hostilities don't exist. Those hostilities aren't going on. You know, sometimes it can be ever so subtle. Something can start as, you know, we, we get on well with the people who we regard as quite similar to us. But therefore, if, we are, uh, if we're getting to know someone who seems different to us in some way, that can just start to kind of get our backs up. We react against someone else, how they're different. Maybe culturally they're different from us. They have different ways of doing things. Or perhaps their character is just plain different. If, if you're very uh, prim and proper and someone else just seems very kind of casual and easygoing, that can just think, ah, oh, I don't get on well with this person. Or if, if you're very um, kind of easygoing, someone else is very well organized and is very methodical, you can think, oh, I just, I just don't get on well with that person. Whereas those maybe 
trivial examples, more serious examples, where in matters of, of relating to people from other cultures, from other races, men relating to women, there can be sometimes that sense of hostility. And God is saying, yeah, we are different. We have different personalities, we have different backgrounds, ethnically, whatever. It, we are a diverse people, yet at the same point, God is saying, no, you're all my people. I've put my spirit in all of you, and so my desire and what I've done and my desire is that these hostilities, these, these things are put away. They're done away with. That is what Paul says. Again, happy day. Wonderful to look at so many uh, uh, problems, I suppose, that Paul identifies for the Colossian church. So, therefore, it's important that moving on from that, we say, well, okay, how do we apply this? How do we get to grips with this? Uh, rather than just go down the pan. And the first is this. The first question that is good to ask is, okay, in a sense, how do we deal with it? What about when do we deal with it? Just before going into this list of things, Paul says this, but now you must. But now you must. Paul identifies these things, these emotions that can sometimes uh, well up, sometimes understandably well up. Paul says, but now you must. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of timing is important and the timing to deal with this when you're aware of it coming up is now, is don't wait, don't allow it to settle as we were uh, just looking at briefly in the story of Cain earlier on. Earlier on. Don't, don't allow that feeling of anger, don't allow that feeling of hostility to settle, to become kind of the norm, to become part of the furniture of our lives. But now you must. There's a sense of urgency. When we were talking about um, matters of sexual immorality, the sense there was, you know, take drastic action, put it to death. And that's still the case here, but in a sense, the exhortation, the, the, the way Paul is addressing us is to say, the important thing is, deal with it soon. Deal with it now. So again, looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, when talking about anger there, uh, Paul says in, the, in Ephesians chapter 4, 26, uh, be angry and do not sin, or in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There again, this sense of urgency, this sense of it is important to deal with this. Let's not let it fester. Let's not let it just build up. Let's deal with it straight away. As I was, um, as I was preparing and kind of thinking about this point, I was kind of thinking, it's so easy to, um, to forget to do something if I don't do it straight away. And so as I was looking, thinking about this point, I thought, oh no. On Tuesday, a friend had texted me, uh, kind of asking me something about meeting up. And at the time, straight away, I didn't know how to respond. And it was then Saturday when I was looking at this, and I thought, oh no, I've not replied to that person. I thought, oh, how rubbish. Um, that's what I'm like. That's what we can be like, is something's important. Sometimes we don't know how to respond. And so something can just kind of drag on. Something can just uh, fester. So, uh, with text messages, that's something I need to think, right, I need to deal with this quickly, not allow kind of it to, to just drag on. With that feeling of anger that can come, needs to be uh, dealt with quickly. Cain didn't do that. 
Cain did the opposite back in Genesis chapter 4. He let his anger linger, and so it settled. And we see something quite amazing there. God asks a very pertinent question to Cain. And when God asks a question, it's not for, in a sense, for God's benefit, as though he doesn't know what the answer is. God is asking the question because he wants Cain to stop and think. And the question that he asks in verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? And as I came to think about that, I thought, what an excellent question to ask. Because sometimes when we're angry, we're not actually even immediately aware of why. You know, that trap door is opened, we've fallen through it, before maybe we've realized quite what's going on. And so this is a good question to ask ourselves. So to get in there straight away and ask ourselves this question, why am I angry right now. Why am I angry? It could be, number one, because you're aware of someone else's wrongdoing. You're aware of some way in which someone has hurt you, or you're aware of of some way in which something that someone's done or something that someone has said is a little bit at odds with what God wants for them. And it can almost be from a sense of compassion that you think, I want this person to get hold of something better than that. And so there can just be that, that inner sense of frustration on the inside. If that is the case, what do we do about it? Well, a couple of things. First of all, if it's directed towards us, we forgive. In any case, it would be good to pray for that person and to exercise our faith in God, to say, no, God, you are at work in this person. If this person is someone who is a believer, who's in Christ, we can say, God, just as you've started a good work in me, and you're going to carry it on to completion, in this person, you've started a good work, and you're going to carry it on to completion. We can trust God in his patient and committed work to carry out his, his work of, of transformation in someone's life. And remember God's mercy for us. Actually, God has forgiven us of all of our sin, which puts other people's wrongdoing into a helpful perspective. Yeah, it might not be great, but actually, in a sense, there's no distinction between us and them. We are, before God, in the same boat. His blood forgives us of the wrongs that we have done. So we can be aware of someone else's wrongdoing. That can be why the the sin, uh, the anger crops up in our own heart. Or we can be angry because suddenly... Uh, we've become aware or disappointed with our own, with our own sin. In which case, there, the step to take is, let's repent. Let's repent about this. Sometimes another feeling can lurk behind anger. The trap door opens, we go through it into anger, but there's actually another feeling that is lurking behind that anger. And it can be helpful to try and identify that as well. Why am I angry? For Cain, perhaps he was angry because he was jealous. He was jealous that his brother had had made an offering to God that was acceptable. Or he was embarrassed or ashamed. And then a question to ask is, is that feeling appropriate? Should I even be having that feeling? And sometimes we can 
sometimes be in response to something, we can even get angry with God. And I would just suggest that feeling is never appropriate. Because if we were justified in being angry with God, it would suggest that God owes us an apology. If God owes us an apology, it suggests God has done something wrong. God doesn't do things wrong. God does things that from our perspective can be puzzling in respect of their timing. Why is this happening now? Why didn't this happen sooner? Or can be puzzling in the sense that it seems to kind of cut against the grain of what we would like to happen. But God is working out his purposes in all things for his glory. God is in control. So what feeling, what other feeling lurks behind anger? If we need to repent, we need to repent as a way of making sure that we don't let the sun go down on our anger because that can build up, that can fester, that can mature into something more serious, into something more damaging or sinister. That is kind of stage one of how to apply what Paul is saying here, stemming from the fact that he said, but now you must, but now you must put them all away. You must do it. You must pray. You must pray for that person. You must forgive that person. You must repent of that thing that has come up because otherwise it can get out of control. There can be that hostility that develops and God doesn't want that for his people. Paul doesn't want that for the Colossians as he goes on to say about the things that he wants, to put, he wants them to put on instead. The problem crops up at this point, however, is that uh, anger and those kind of hostile feelings are uh, spontaneous. And it's good to deal with them in retrospect, but it's also important not only to deal with anger as and when it arises, which for some of us might be infrequently, but for others of us might be quite often, It's also important to do this second stage, which is to cooperate with God's ongoing work in our lives so that sinful anger is something that we are increasingly less likely to be experiencing in the first place anyway. We need to cooperate with God's ongoing work in our lives. If you look at verse 9 And 10, it says there, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It speaks there of something that has definitely happened in the past. The thing that has definitely happened in the past is that we have put off the old self and put on the new self. That, I believe, is talking about the point where we were born again where Christ had drawn us to himself, revealed to us his love and his power to forgive our sin, and we we responded to him by saying, yes, Lord, I give my life to you, I repent of what I've done wrong, and I gladly accept the forgiveness for everything I've done wrong that comes to me because of Jesus' blood that was shed for me. That's has definitely, totally happened. So, if you, had two, if you had a badge on you today, that badge could rightly say, totally forgiven, totally born again, totally God's child, 
totally filled uh, with his Holy Spirit, totally indwelt by God. God is in you by his Holy Spirit. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. All of that could be on a badge that you are wearing right now. It would be true. From the moment you came to Christ, that was true of you. Something that has definitely happened. But it also refers to something that is still happening. And the thing that is still happening is, having put on the new self, it is being renewed. We are being made new still. That is speaking about an ongoing process of God transforming us more and more into his likeness so that we become more and more like him. So we are more and more like the image of our creator. And again, that is speaking of something that God is committed to still doing in every one of our lives, having come to Christ. So that's why, if you've been a Christian for 20 years, and you suddenly become aware of a, of a problem, or you suddenly become aware of a, of a sinful reaction, or some tendency that, you, that disappoints you, you kind of think, am I not over that yet? After all these years of following Jesus as my Lord, has that not been taken out yet? This is why God is doing an ongoing work. And he couldn't do everything all at once. He couldn't bring everything to our attention in the very first week of being a Christian because it would swamp us. He's a patient God who saves us, chooses us, and then patiently works out his plans week by week, month by month, year by year. You may have only been a Christian for one week and you might have that disappointment. I've come to Christ. Everything's changed for me. I've, I've been born again. Jesus has come into my life. What a joyful experience. But I'm still aware of, of problem A and sin B and difficulty C. Why are these things not dealt with? I thought that everything would change suddenly. What God is doing is renewing us. It's an ongoing process. I love the way that um, this is hinted at in Hebrews. uh, In Hebrews chapter 10. Again, where it's kind of referring to what God has definitely done and what God is still doing. And it almost sounds um, at odds with each other, but it isn't. It's talking about Jesus once for all sacrificed for us which, which changes everything. And it says here in Hebrews 10, if we read from verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, in other words, he offered himself on the cross once and for all, a sacrifice for sins for us, goes on to say, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his seat, for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And if you're uh, reading in the NIV, I think it used the same basic word, perfect or perfect. He has perfected for all times those who are being made perfect. Well, that just sounds bizarre. But that reflects the Christian gospel. That reflects what we're in right now. By Jesus' blood, he's put that badge on us. He has put it on us saying, 
you're mine. In my sight, you are perfect. In my sight, I have blotted out everything you've done wrong. You do not now need to try to earn my favor or my love or my mercy or my grace or my gifts. I do it all for you. I've done that. But also, there's another badge on us, maybe the the kind of other side, saying something which is equally true. And it says this. I'm a work in progress. It says one of those kind of Christian cliches that sometimes you do see on fluffy posters. God hasn't finished with me yet. God has not finished with me yet. God is committed to seeing his work through in me. And so there's this process of renewal going on. He's making us new. Just imagine right now, uh, this might be a slightly odd imagination to try and conjure up, but imagine right now that you are a house. Okay? Or more particularly, that your mind is a house. You can decide uh, just briefly if you want to be a kind of detached bungalow or an inner city terrace or suburban semi. Um, But you're a house, right? Before you were born again, you were owned by a malicious owner. You were owned by someone who did not care about you, who had no interest in your upkeep or your welfare, and so there, were, there was damage, there was repairs there was, that needed doing, there was damp. It's almost like this house was insecure. Anyone could just come in and go out. That's what we were before we were in Christ, when we were under the, the ownership or the supervision of the devil. He did not care about us, but he was our owner. On the title deeds of our life was written the ownership of the devil. That may not have been obvious to some. It may not have been obvious uh, in terms of physically appearing an absolute wreck. We may have, been, uh, we may have appeared uh, very up and together people. Uh, we may have been very clever people or not. But the point is we were owned by the devil. He did not want to put you on the market He didn't decide, I've had enough of this person, I'm going to put them up on the market. He wanted to keep hold of you. He wanted to keep hold of us under his power, under his rulership. But something happened. God decided from heaven that he would send his son with a compulsory purchase order. Christ came along and said, devil, you don't have a choice. I'm buying this person. I'm rescuing this person out of your domain, out of that domain of darkness, and I'm bringing you into, I'm bringing that person into my kingdom, a kingdom of light. Straight away, something has happened. No longer on the title deeds does it say, owned by the devil. Now it says on the title deeds, owned by God, loved by Christ. And so straight away, we had someone who cared about us. We had someone who wanted to rescue us. So from that point, in a sense, everything had changed. There's a party, maybe throw a housewarming. Everything has changed. And yet, this house still has some repairs that need doing. Still has some roof tiles missing. Still has some damp on the walls. Still is in a state of just general disrepair. 
And uh, God, therefore, sets out on a process of renewal. Right, let's get things sorted, you know, room by room. And God decides what stays and what goes. This needs to go. We need to get this sorted. We need to have that wall replastered. The wall is fine. The structure's fine. But we need to change some stuff here. And again, so you might be a Christian of 20, 30, 40 years, and stuff is pretty well sorted. The house has been well decorated. God has been at work faithfully over the years, renewing you in his image, making you more like Christ. But then maybe you're aware of the cupboard under the stairs. And uh, Jesus says to you one day, right, today is the day when we clear out that cupboard under the stairs. And you say in your heart, please God, no. Please God, never go there. That's where I keep all the stuff that I've tried to hide from you. I'm really grateful for the fact that you fitted me with fantastic double glazing. I've got a new boiler now. Uh, The kitchen is amazing. I can be hospitable towards people. But I really don't want you to go there. Jesus says, but I already know what's in there. And I know it needs to come out. And I want to take it out quite soon. That's what it can be like for us. Again, the kind of disappointment. Ah, I thought stuff was sorted now. But God's just put his finger on something. God's just put his finger on the way I react when this happens. God's put his finger on, why does that make me angry? Why, why was I quick-tempered uh, with, my, with my son or daughter, with my spouse? Or uh, why didn't I believe God for, for that situation or for that difficulty? And God says, I, I want to bring this out because of the bigger picture. The bigger picture is, I want to make you new. I want to continue this work of renewal to take you on uh, to that time when actually with me in heaven, you'll be face to face with me. There'll be no more work to do. The job will be completely done. Um, that is what Christ wants to do. And for us, therefore, we want to cooperate with God and say, okay, God, I open the door to the understairs cupboard and I say, God, what stays and what goes? Let's sort it through. Let's go through it. I'd rather it wasn't there, but it is there. I'm trusting you to help me to get rid of this stuff now in the name of Jesus. That's what it can be like. Again, before the house uh, was born again, before we were born again, and that house was under the the ownership of the devil, I mentioned early on, it was like there was no lock on the door. Anything could come in and go out. And uh, for us then, that's almost like some of the thoughts or feelings that we could have. Now, we could be stood at the door, and there's a knock, and, ah, it's Mr. and Mrs. Anxiety. Hello, we've met before. Why don't you come in and make yourself at home? Uh, In they come. They've been there before, and they have a pot around. They're not very good at sitting down. They tend to kind of, like, be cut nervous and walk around. Uh, You're familiar with them, and in they come. Uh, Or maybe uh, Mr. Anger comes in. Uh, He doesn't knock. He just barges in, and he tends to come, come along with Mr. Jealousy, and uh, no one else really talks to them because they haven't got any friends. Um, and they set up camp in your front room watching the telly. That's what was, that was what life was like in that old way. That was what life was like with the old self. Those things just came in and we were subject to them. There was no lock on the door, as it were. Christ comes, we're born again, something has dramatically changed. God has put a lock on the door... 
And he's starting this work of renewal on the inside. However, we still get people knocking at the door. Some people we want to let in. Some people we don't. And Mr. and Mrs. Anxiety dutifully come along again and, uh, and want to come in. We need to cooperate with, with God's ongoing work in us by not only saying to God about the things that are in the house, okay, Lord, you decide what stays or goes, let's deal with this, let's open the cupboard door to the understairs compartment, but we're also cooperating with God's ongoing work in our life by saying, God, who shall I let in and who shan't I let in? And how do I decide? And how do I, how do I get a renewed mind? Because that's the issue here, is having the right thoughts and the right feelings on the inside, no longer always reacting in the quick-tempered way, for example, that we once did. And basically, it's with this. It's with the Word of God. God has given us His Word, which is effectively the guest list. So if someone comes knocking on the door and says, hello, I'm Mr. and Mrs. Anxiety, we have a flick through here. And we see, okay, in here, does it say that anxiety is on the checklist? And so we turn to uh, Philippians, uh, chapter 4 and verse 6. And it says, um, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do not be anxious about anything. I'm sorry, um, I don't think you can come in right now. In fact, I don't think you can ever come in. Um, I've looked at this. I've looked at what God has given me now. And I'm deciding, no, you're not coming in. And the same goes for other feelings, other things, other thoughts that just knock on the door. There's that familiarity. They've been there before. Even since the house has been fixed and done up and a new lock has been put on the door, sometimes we've let them in. But actually, there's an ongoing work of God to renew us on the inside. So that when these things crop up, We're no longer just saying, yeah, yeah, come in, make yourself at home. But no, God is at work in me. God bought me with his own blood that I might be, along with all of his people, part of his people for the praises of him who's done excellent things. I belong to him. I belong to a God who is good and who cares and is patiently helping me in every stage of life that he takes me through. And because God is doing that ongoing work, the work is his, we've got to cooperate with it. We've got to decide on the basis of what the Bible says, on the basis of what God wants for our lives, we're doing away with that. We're we're giving ourselves to what God wants to do in our lives. We're cooperating with what he's doing, an inner change in us that affects our minds. I don't know if you've spotted, in a sense it's impossible to not be angry, but for Christ dwelling in us and him helping us. This is not a message of, um, come on, do the right thing. This is a message of, Christ bought you. Jesus is with you. He's committed to you. He's working in your life to renew you. And let's cooperate with his work.